Today we're going to be looking uh, at the, the beginning to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So let me invite you to turn there, if you haven't already, in your Bibles. And we're, we're nearing the end of this letter. We've got a few more weeks left in 2 Corinthians. But way back, right after Easter, Dom really sort of laid the groundwork for how in, in Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he wants to explain to them what it looks like to live in light of the resurrection, right? What it meant to be a resurrection people who are shaped uh, not just by the fact that Jesus lived and what Jesus taught, people who aren't just shaped by the fact that Jesus died for our sins, but who are being shaped by the reality that Jesus was also raised from death and that, that there is a, a future yet to come that defines us, but but that future resurrection reality that we are, are waiting for is also shaping and informing and even sort of invading our present reality as followers of Jesus. The last month or so, uh, I've been talking about what, well, what does that mean then in, in the ways that we live? What does that mean in the ways we think about power and its use? What does that mean in the way we think about our possessions and generosity and, and blessing others? How does the resurrection shape relationships of conflict? How does it shape where things are broken and, and where heartfelt sorrow needs to be uh, sort of do its work so that we can also ask Jesus to, to heal who we are and, and how we love in this present age as well? So we're thinking about about who Jesus is and how his resurrection changes us. Today I want us to think specifically about how the resurrection shapes our love. Who we love, how we love, how we receive love. So we're going to be listening for what Paul has to say on that topic. No, we live in an age of, of streaming, um, movies, films, all kinds of entertainment. And if you happen to have a subscription to Disney Plus, one of the, the funniest things I think on uh, that platform is a series of short films called Forky Asks a Question. Any of you guys seen these short films? They are. We're in the minority, I guess, as a family. Uh, Forky is a spork that has googly eyes glued on. He's a, it's like a homemade craft toy. And he's from the, the Toy Story series of films, but they spun him off as a character, and he has all these sort of, uh, I guess, sort of a, a, a layman's philosophy course. He's asking all these big questions, uh, but from a very funny and simple level. One of my favorite short films uh, in this series is where Forky wants to know what love is. And here's a 30-second trailer from YouTube. Hiya folks, Sporky here. Another question. <clears throat> what is love, right? To help me with that today are these very, 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 very senior toys. How many varies does one need in a sentence? Melephant Brooks, Carl Rhinoceros, and Cheryl Burnett. Forky, let me start. I know everything there is to know about love. Wow. Do not be afraid to ask me anything at all about love. Perfect. All right, go ahead. How do you know if you're in love? No idea. That was a, a silly and pretty quick clip. If you're interested, you can, you can watch the whole thing on Disney+. Plus. 
But it, it points to the idea that love is confusing. Love is mysterious. Right? Even when we think we know something about love, we may find, in fact, uh, a little further down the road that we are confused. Even the most senior members of our congregation, even the, those who've been following Jesus for a long time, I think, recognize that there is an aspect to, to what love is and how we grow into it. That's um, something we're still figuring out. And it, it may sound funny to us, but I think that the question Forky is asking here is also one Paul is consistently asking throughout his letters, the epistles in the New Testament. Paul is actually, we could say, sort of preoccupied with the question of love. The word love appears almost a hundred times in the writings of Paul. And almost 30 of those references to love show up in just the two letters we have in his writing to the church in Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. You think back to, to 1st Corinthians, there's even a whole chapter, a whole poem in 1st Corinthians 13, just focused on the question of, of love. What is real love? How do we know it? What does it look like? Is there something distinctive about love within the context of, of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ? So Paul has a lot to say about love in his letters. But if we take just First and Second Corinthians as our, our example, we, we discover that Paul has a lot to say about love because love is not all roses. Paul has to spend a lot of time on this topic because his experience with love and, and in teaching and, and leading others in that area is that love is often fickle. Love often chases things that aren't truly love. Love often misleads us, or, or what we think is love often misleads us. And so as we open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 today, we find uh, a situation where love is sort of on the rocks between Paul and, and the church in Corinth. And we discover that while Paul has been away preaching and, and working with other congregations, there are some who have come in and they are vying for the affections, vying for the attention of the Corinthian congregation, trying to turn their hearts away from Paul and toward themselves. And it leaves Paul in an awkward position of, of needing to prove his love to the Corinthians yet again in a way that, that speaks to their hearts, in a way that they can feel it and see it and understand it. And so as we, we look at what Paul's written here, let me pray for us as we, we begin to do that. Lord, we believe that it was out of love that we were created by you in the, in the beginning. We believe that it's out of love that you have pursued us and maintained a relationship with us, even, even in our brokenness, even in our confusion, even when we choose things which do not love us back in the way we would hope. And Lord, we also believe that it is in perfect love 
that, it, that you desire to, to join us to your resurrection power, your resurrection life, so that we may grow into the fullness, full understanding of, of who we are, of what we were made for, of what real love looks and feels like. And so we, we pray you would join us to your understanding of that, Jesus. May the words of my mouth as I preach this morning, may the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing, be, be turned to, be sensitive to your affection for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'm actually going to pick up uh, with the last couple verses in chapter 10 and then the first verse in 11 to start out. And this comes at a point in Paul's letter, again, where he uh, feels the need to defend himself from the attacks of his opponents, from these other, other people who have come into Corinth and are, are trying to, again, gain the affections of the congregation there, but also turn them away from Paul. And, and these opponents of Paul are, are keen to show that they are superior to Paul in every way. They, 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 they do a lot of boasting about what they know, about, about how they speak, maybe even about their prestige and position in society and wealth. And so in all of this boasting, Paul is left to, to sort of figure out how he makes his own case. Look at verse 17. Paul says, let the one who boasts then boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Please do bear with me. Paul is going in just a few moments to begin his own boasting in this letter. But first, Paul needs to explain why he's taking that approach. I think if we're, you know, to reflect on our own experiences in love, you know that, that there are different strategies for winning someone's affections. Right? When you notice that special someone that, that you hope will, will return your affections, will, will notice you, there's sort of the short game approach and there's the long game approach. The long game seeks to, to build a relationship with that person over time and, and to look for little opportunities to show an interest in them, to show that you care for them, right? To, to woo their hearts through a kind of quiet consistency and reliability. Right? You go out of your way to, to serve them and, and care about them. And we might call this sort of long game approach, letting love speak for itself. Maybe some of you can identify with this approach. Maybe some of you have used this approach in, in your own uh, love relationships. But clear on the other end of the spectrum is an approach that believes love requires some self-promotion to get what it wants. Right? If you're going to, 
to win the kind of admiration and attention of, of the person you're seeking after, then you've got to look good. You've got to talk good. You need, to, you need to make a splash. You need to draw their attention to you. And we might call this approach the, the look at me and love me approach. Notice me. Right, I've got a, a picture of a, of a peacock, right, strutting his stuff. And the hope is that if you put on a good show, that you'll win affection. You'll win love in return. And Paul finds himself in this contested relationship with the church in Corinth. And he needs to, to decide what approach is he going to use to win their affections, to win back their love. And I think it's safe to say that up to this point in his relationship with the church, Paul has been a, a let my love speak for itself kind of guy. Right? Paul's love is other-centered. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians about love, right, that, that love is never proud. It's never self-seeking. Right? Love is patient. Right? Paul believes love happens in the long game, in the long run. And he points to that idea here in these handful of verses we just looked at. Paul believes that, that love on this side of the resurrection is shaped by, it's, it's secure in, it, it draws the source for, for what love is from the approval of God and God's love for us in the first place. Paul knows that so often when we are seeking love, it can come from a place of insecurity, right? And that leads to all kinds of foolish behavior, self-centered behavior. And so as Paul begins to, to speak about his love in these chapters, he wants to say that, that first of all, love must ground itself in the approval of God, the love of God, the unmerited favor of God. Because Paul knows you, you can't give what you haven't already received. We have to go to the person of God who is love in order to enter into and be in stable and, and life-giving love relationships in the horizontal sense. And so Paul is committed to this idea that, that love is steadfast, love is patient, love isn't self-seeking. But while he's been away from Corinth, the people that have come in and, and are trying to lead in his place have taken the opposite approach. They are the look at me and love me kind of leaders. Paul doesn't know what to do because it seems on, on one hand that the Corinthians are, are falling for these flashy lovers, these flashy leaders. But on the other hand, in verses 17 and 18, he, he knows that Boasting and bragging and trying to present this impressive appearance is foolishness. It's self-centered. It's, it's insecure. But what Paul signals in verse 1 is that for the sake of the Corinthians, in order to gain their attention and, and win them back, Paul is going to try to beat his opponents at their own game. He's going to enter into a round of boasting 
kind of, of pointing to himself and signaling his love to the Corinthian congregation. Paul says, if boasting is what it takes, if that's the way people get your attention, then bear with me. Right? Play along with me in a little bit of foolishness, he says, verse 1. And in verse 2 and following, he begins to use that, that foolishness and that boasting to talk about how much he loves them. Verse 2, chapter 11. Paul says, Bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You're willing to go along with it. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. For even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. And indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Paul will go on from there in the rest of chapter 11 to talk about the evidences of his love. How he, he preached the gospel without charge. How he never took anything from the Corinthians. Right? How he suffered for them. How as an apostle, he's been persecuted and jailed on behalf of this gospel, right? Again and again, Paul says, I could point to these things. I could boast of these things to show you who I am and my status and why you should love me. But here, Paul is beginning, he sort of grounds his claim in, in a single image. And it's the image of a father's love for his child, and in particular, a father's love for his daughter. Paul is saying, can't you see how much I love you? Isn't it obvious to you? Do I have to prove it to you? And he says that he is jealous for the Corinthians, like a father might be jealous for the love of his daughter. And here he, he has in mind a daughter who is nearing or approaching the age of marriage, approaching her own wedding day, and how the father feels about that event. If you've ever watched the, the old Father of the Bride movies with Steve Martin, you'll know, right, how, how a father's own love but, but jealousy can lead him to do all kinds of of wild and, and foolish things, right? As almost as a demonstration of that love. Paul, in this context, is saying not so much that he is jealous for the Corinthians to love him, 
But, but more than that, that he is jealous that the Corinthians, again, with that image of, of a daughter being prepared for her wedding day, that they would be given to the right person, that they would enter into a relationship with someone who will love them and serve them and be steadfast in his love for them. And in unpacking this sort of metaphor that Paul is developing in these verses, I think it's helpful for us to have at least a working sense of what marriage and the process toward marriage looked like in first century Judaism. In Paul's context, when a young woman and a young man decided that they were going to join their lives together, the first major step in that process was was known as betrothal. And betrothal would be similar to kind of our concept of engagement. But maybe more than engagement in our context, betrothal itself was a legal promise. It was binding upon the two people and their families. If someone were to die in the in the the time in which they were betrothed, the the person they left behind was actually considered a a widow of the person they had been betrothed to. So there was a seriousness about this promise or this agreement. But, But betrothal was not marriage. It was a step before marriage. And at the stage of betrothal, the the agreement was our lives are are going to be joined together. They're headed in the same direction. Betrothal also meant that you would leave behind other suitors, other persons or families who might be entertaining affections for for one of the persons involved in this relationship. Betrothal was a decision to make this, this promise exclusive. But betrothal also signified that now the couple could begin making plans for their future life together. Betrothal meant that now they could begin living with the anticipation that their wedding day was coming soon. Now soon is a relative term. It would probably typically have taken months or or in many cases even more than a year for the wedding day to arrive after betrothal. And during that time, the young woman and the young man remained in their parents' homes. They remained chaste in their physical relationship with each other. But more and more, their future outlook of what was coming, of what their lives were pointing towards, was shaped by the promise of marriage, promise of a wedding day. More and more, their future was shaped by by the knowledge that soon they would leave their father, leave their mother, and as, as Genesis 1 puts it, Genesis 2 puts it, they would become one flesh. Right? Betrothal would soon give way to marriage. And so Paul is, is pulling all of this into his own metaphor. And he says, I'm the father in this relationship, and I have watched you grow up in the faith. Paul says, I was was there when you first met Jesus. I was there when your hearts came alive with his life and his love for you. And he says in verse 2, and so it was to Christ, so it was to the person of Jesus that I betrothed you. I promised you in marriage, for marriage. 
I promised your hearts and your affections to him. And in, in making that promise, there were to be no other lovers. There were to be no, no other competitors in that relationship. Paul's saying, even now we're waiting, we're preparing, we're, we're letting that future promise of the wedding that's coming to, to inform our present moment of waiting. Right, you're, you're in this place where you're waiting for that future fullness of relationship to come, a future consummation and completion. And that's, that's the, the new creation reality, right, that Paul speaks about throughout this letter. We're in a present, committed relationship with Christ. But there is a, a greater fullness that we are waiting for in it. And so Paul is saying that resurrection love recognizes that our hearts are promised to Christ. Right now we're in a, an engagement period. We're in a period of waiting. But that's also a time where our love is, is growing and being refined and being shaped for what's to come. The challenge is that that even though the Corinthians have been promised to Christ, Paul says in verses 3 and 4 that others have come into that relationship. And they're vying not just with Paul, they're actually competing with their devotion to Christ himself. And he compares them uh, back to, to Genesis 2 and 3. When, when Eve fell for the serpent's deception, right? the serpent came into the garden and promised to give Eve greater power, greater knowledge if she were to leave behind the love of God. Paul says in the same way he fears that the Corinthians are being deceived, that they are falling for a false love. They're being tempted by a false desire. And so they're looking for love in all the wrong places. Paul says they're looking to those who would sell them a different Jesus, sell them a different spirit, sell them a different gospel than the one he preached. Pete talked this morning about Paul's zeal to defend the gospel. And I think in this case, Paul is zealous because the gospel that these outsiders are selling is one that's big on appearances. It's a gospel that's big on power. It's a gospel that's big on, on a certain kind of knowledge. It's, it's a gospel that primarily points to how important we are or an individual is. But it's a gospel that Paul believes is devoid of actual love. Paul is addressing this in his own day, but I don't think we have to look too far to find it in our own context, right? We have plenty of celebrity pastors. We have plenty of abusive leaders. We have plenty of, of little shifts to, to the gospel that make it mostly about us, whether that's about entertaining us, whether that's about making us feel self-righteous and more important than another person, 
we're tempted to believe in a look at me and love me kind of gospel. Believing that's how we gain the affection that we seek. Believing that's how we gain the things we desire. But when we do that, we actually ignore the good news of the gospel. The gospel is is a Jesus who is other-centered, whose love is cruciform and cross-shaped. It's a love that's patient and kind and gentle and steadfast. It's a love that pours itself out on behalf of another. But all too often, right, we are duped by people who use our love for their own self-promotion. Or we're duped by desires that we think will love us back and that just leave us broken. And we ignore the ones who love us patiently, sacrificially, quietly. We ignore those like Paul who seek to to point the one he loves into a relationship that will protect them and build them up. I was thinking this morning about a, a friend of mine whose daughter, adult daughter, was caught in a very destructive relationship with, with a young man. And eventually, you know, they were trying to protect their daughter, but it meant sort of being caught in the crossfire with this young man who they were protecting her from. And at one point, the man, young man became very angry with the father. And he said, you're such a patriarch. You're such a dad, right? Who are you to stand in between the two of us? And he said, upon reflection, he didn't know of a greater compliment that could be paid to him. Because as a father, he loved his daughter deeply, patiently, steadfastly. Right? And, and he wanted to protect her from someone who would use her and harm her and tear her down. And so he was jealous in his love for his daughter. I think what Paul is telling us here is that in order to grow in resurrection love, it's, it's a process, it's a practice that moves us more and more toward fidelity in our relationship with Christ. And we need people to help us do that, people to guard that fidelity, people to point us to what the gospel is actually about and to protect us from the things that don't love us the way we think they might. I wonder who those people are in your life. Right? Who truly loves you? Maybe that's a question worth asking. And I think what this passage suggests is that if someone truly loves you, they remind you that you are betrothed to Christ. They remind you that your future is ultimately and fully in the person of Jesus. Love points us toward that future reality. 
which we are, are waiting for the fullness of. Those who love you cherish the values and the vision of Jesus and his kingdom. Right? Think of the, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes expressed therein. Who points you to love those things, to love in that way? Who is encouraging your faithfulness and fidelity to that kind of life, that kind of love? Whose desires and actions and, and way of being in the world communicate the love of Jesus to you? We, we need to surround ourselves with those kind of people, with people who communicate that kind of love to us. Paul is saying these are the people we can trust our hearts with. These are the people who will draw us into the kind of resurrection relationship with Christ we're seeking. Let me pray for us that we might also grow up into that love. Lord, our our hearts are the most significant part of who we are, and they're also some of the hardest things for us to understand. Lord, as we heard in the call to worship this morning, you have loved us with an everlasting love, a love that's never stopped, it's never been turned away. Lord, I pray if there are those who cannot believe this morning that they are loved to that degree, that you would, you would speak to their emotions, speak to their minds, speak to the core of their very soul about how you love them. Lord, I pray if, if there are those who find themselves trapped or anxious about things they have given their hearts to, but that are not loving them back. That they would bring their hearts to you and invite you to heal them and care for them in those ways. And Lord, I pray finally for this body and the relationships between us as brothers and sisters. Lord, if there are places we need assistance in loving one another in the way you've loved us. Lord, help us to be zealous to ask you for that help. It's in your name we pray. Amen.